These may be challenging times, but have hope and listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of, except at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia. Our guest today is Dr. Joy DeGruy. She's president and chief executive officer of Joy DeGruy Publications Incorporated, and Dr. Gru's research focuses on the intersection of racism, trauma, violence, and American chattel slavery. She has over 30 years of practical experience as a professional in the field of social work. She conducts workshops and trainings in the areas of intergenerational historical trauma, mental health, and social justice. She's an author of her seminal book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Welcome to Healthcare Untold, Dr. DeGruy, and it's such an honor to have you on our podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, this is amazing times we're living in. Absolutely. And, you know, you've educated, challenged, and touched the hearts and minds of thousands of students and health providers uh, with your books, your writings, and trainings on racism uh, and trauma, Dr. DeGruy. Uh, would you share with us your journey of your work and, and how you got here? Sure. I'll, I'll try. <laughs> it, I know. You know, it, it's a lot. It's a lot. But, you know, I think um, it really started, my work really started with my family, with my childhood. I grew up um, in Los Angeles. I grew up uh, with parents that had made that 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 transition from the South. Uh, they were leaving Louisiana to, you know, seek the warmth of other sons, if you will. And they were part of that, you know, that massive six million people exodus uh, from Jim Crow, uh, really hoping and wanting a better life. My father uh, was really a, a very, very powerful uh, part of my life, a very important part of my life. He actually only went to like the sixth grade. Mm. And uh, he, but he knew, he knew he wanted his, his kids to go away to college, to, to do something in the world. And he was very clear about himself. We had a very healthy perspective of our blackness, of being black people. And my mom uh, turned down a scholarship uh, to raise a family. And it was, you know, not a perfect family, but what I did love about what I was learning, and that was the genuine, inherent goodness of of people in general, but in black at black people specifically, you know, mm -hmm. I really had a healthy, a healthy view. Mm -hmm. So you gotta remember I'm I'm 63. So I grew up, you know, with the 60s. My my older siblings were involved in the, the Black Power movement. Uh, I was in the breakfast program for the, you know, with the um Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. My um, you know, my family was just very active in that way. And my father was calling himself a black man before anyone was. Mm -hmm. And so I had this sense of myself, but I also knew very early on that I was seeing things in my community, in the African-American community, that were disturbing to me, even as a child. Um, I was the child that I kind of grew up just really 
standing up for the underdog, you know, even in kindergarten, you know, I befriended my very first school friend uh, because they were teasing her. Her name was Victoria Youngblood. And I remember them teasing her and her crying and me befriending her and me also befriending and giving my lunch to the kid that I knew didn't have one. And, you know, that's just kind of who I've always been. But there was something that I saw going on within my community internally, you know, what you would call intraculturally, you know. So I was curious about uh, statements about, oh, my God, she was so pretty, even though she was dark. You know, mm-hmm. he was really attractive because he was light skinned and, you know, had good hair. These were things that I grew up with that just, you know, I bristled. I did it just I'm going, what is this about? Right. Why is it? You know, we are so hard on ourselves as a people. And what is that about? Mm -hmm. And so, again, as a child, these were curiosities. As I became an adult, uh, I started to do a deeper dive and I started to to look at what I knew. I I was trained as a social worker, as a clinician, studied all of these different um, issues that people have had throughout history, understanding the history of mental health, all of those kinds of things. And I started to realize this you know, simple things like post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, these are things that come about as a result of people experiencing uh, a singular trauma. And then I started to think, how many traumas have people of African descent in America experienced? How many traumas? And why has there never been a conversation about those traumas? Because there were 300 years of trauma, right? right? And so then there was this other part of me that said, well, you know, I'm looking back at a history that is torturous, you know, with with uh, anti-blackness, white supremacy, you know, racial terrorism, lynchings. I'm looking at it. It's not like this is you know, it's not clear. It's not hidden. Yet there's never been a real look into what happens to a people that you do that to mm-hmm. over generations. The good news is that we are extraordinary uh, in terms of our resilience, uh, but we are just like everyone else. You know, we are impacted by uh, the environment, you know, social uh, determinants, if you will. Uh, And those social determinants impact our health, our mental health, our future, all of those things. And so post-traumatic, post-traumatic slave syndrome, which is what uh, I coined what I saw. Yes. And I looked at it, you know, uh, in a variety of different areas. But more importantly, I wanted to really unpack and and, and better understand how we have uh, survived and even thrived as a people. And to also, more importantly, change the trajectory of this negative kind of imagery and taking on this notion of, of, of being victims, or I wanted to make certain that one, that that racial terrorism I'm talking about, which we saw show itself at the, the Capitol, yes. that, that terrorism that everyone was in denial about calling it a fringe, calling it, you know, a couple of bad apples. It's not a bad apples, it's a bad orchard. Okay. <laughs> right. And what I started to understand then was the systemic nature of that trauma. And um, it drove me. And just, and just in terms of spiritual practice, I believe fundamentally um, in the oneness of mankind, that all humanity is one. Uh, that has been my, my religious and spiritual anchoring 
and no matter how badly we all behave, right. each group, and of course, there's no group that is uh, devoid of the ugly and the and the wonderful and the amazing and the suffering and all of that. All groups have that experience, uh, and I'm not I'm not outside of understanding that. But I was interested in how do we change that trajectory? How do we create for our children and their children? Uh, a way of being and moving through the world that does not, again, create the levels of harm. And I'm not suggesting that there hasn't been great improvements that have occurred, but we, are, we, we have a long way to go as we've all come to know, understanding and looking at what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of these other folks um, that we've seen and, and even, you know, assaults against the Asian community and the Latinx community. I mean, these are things that continue to happen because we've not addressed the root cause. And that root cause is white supremacy mm-hmm. in this country. And we, we've avoided it. We've ignored it. We've pretended it wasn't there. We, were, we have ignored the worst gang in American history. You know, while focusing on the Crips and the Bloods, we don't look at the, well, the Klan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we don't look at that. They've been around longer than anybody mm-hmm. and uh, have, have caused extraordinary harm. And so I think that's my journey. My journey was, uh, one, trying to understand, two, uh, trying to figure out how do we fix it? How do we heal? And how do we heal amidst continuing to be, you know, traumatized? How, right. how, do, we do, how do we do that? Yeah. And that was my, that, that's my work. Well, that's so incredible, um, Dr. DeGru, because I saw you in action uh, during the time that I was at the health department in San Francisco and the number of people that you touched, particularly the black African-American um, employees who got a diff- totally different understanding and an inspiration to really do their work and then also to look at all the other professionals, white professionals and, and professionals of color in that department and how to really focus on the Black African-American communities that they were serving, and how do we do that better? Because when you touch the trainer and the provider, you're really changing the direction of how people are being treated in care, in healthcare. And so, uh, you know, that is such a powerful role, <laughs> right? Yeah, that, that, I mean, again, I, I, um, I'm so grateful for having, having that opportunity I've had mentors and people in my life professionally and personally um, that have shown up for me in, in ways that help me understand that I have a level of efficacy. There's something we can do to affect change in our, in our environment. And as you mentioned, uh, just professionally, I, you know, I, I say this, it, it probably seems harsh, but I don't believe my, my education uh, fully prepared me to work with the people that look like me. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I just, it, it did not, it did not create. Now, there are certain things that, you know, lived experience that I, I have, you know, being 63 years old, you know, African-American woman. I there are things that I knew that I went against because I accepted this perspective of what was needed for people that look like me without anyone really well asking the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a good friend of mine um, says that People always want to study us, but they don't love us. Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of, oh, you know, a kind of patriarchal 
uh, we, who knows better, right? We know better what you need for you. And, and all of that ran against everything in terms of the, you know, the research community. But at the same time, when it came to people of color and specifically African-American people, uh, it was as if, you know, there was this uh, dominant uh, need to control every aspect of, of our lives. And when I did, you know, the historical research, then I understood this was always the intent. Black people have always been under the microscope um, and, and in need of being controlled. This was the, the perception that was put out there with a pathological fear that we were going to do to white people what they had done to us. And in all these years, that's never happened. That's right. And yet it is the number one reason, oh, I feared for my life. You know, uh, these are dangerous people to whom? Where is there any evidence that African-American people are a danger to white people, that we are going to, that we have now displayed something that suggests we're trying to annihilate white people, right? Never happened. Not only that, it happened with anybody else either. Yeah. But okay. that it is that, that becomes the, the, the reasoning behind all of the, everything that happens, the police use of deadly force, uh, you know, the over-policing of our neighborhoods, the marginalization of, of black people, the economic uh, uh, distress, all of those things have been, well, one, blamed on black people, and two, uh, pathologized. And so when I think about it, if you really unpack it, you, we need to turn that high-powered mic microscope on the rest of the folks. Mm -hmm. And then we begin to see something else emerge. We begin to see structural and systemic oppression. We see it built into the fiber, the very fabric of American society and every major institution in America. So this is going to take some doing to turn around. And one of the ways we do that uh, is we educate those who we're, we're, we're handing that baton to, the young people from every background. We, right. we hand them the tools to begin to change this in a way uh, that is going to change the structure of this country. Yes, you know, and I know you have been a professor uh, in education and higher ed in higher education, and I just started in that role. And I have to say, I do have a lot of inspiration and hope with this generation that I see. Yes, yes. Um, and with each other as well. I was like really struck by how they're engaging with each other and the kind of compassion that they're giving each other. Um, and so I'm really I have a lot of hope for the future. But it's such in a, in such in a situation, Doctor Degrew, where you see, you know, just the issue of being a, a, a Latina, Latinx, in part Indigenous, and seeing mm. how we're kind of invisible. We're invisible. Oh yeah. And what I see, though, when I see African American Black leadership, they always mention us. They always say brown people. Always after Black, it said they say brown, and. And the African community is the only one recognizing us because um, we are we are invisible in this country. And if and, yes. and, you know, as you saw in the Trump administration and the way they described us sure. as, as African-Americans have been described for centuries. So we, well, well it, mm -hmm. if you would think, take that statement and understand uh, one of the, the number one kind of slogans that happened in the last couple of years pre-COVID. Uh, was this whole idea that diversity equals white genocide. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. diversity equals 
white genocide. And when you start looking at uh, the Latinx community, how broad, how uh, diverse and growing a community, you have to understand that produces fear. The browning of America. The browning of America. it It shouldn't produce fear, but it does. And it's once again, part of the reason why it produces that fear is this notion that white people should dominate. And if white people aren't dominating, then they're being destroyed. So there's those extremes that keep showing up um, over and over again, you know, these these kind of extreme perspectives. And so all people of color right now, the Asian community, everyone, you know, they pose a threat to whiteness in some very bizarre way. But the only reason, like I say, that anyone could have that fear is if you deem yourself superior to all others. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. if you don't see us all as human beings that are just moving through the world and doing our lives and trying to do so in an authentic way, if you deem yourself, yeah, there, there's, there's whiteness and then everyone else is the other. You see, everyone occupies other. Right. And the Latinx community is becoming a huge threat. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you're going to see more of that marginalization and more of that those ex, those those extreme behaviors. That's what I would I would suspect. Yeah, me too, me too. And you know, as we've seen, as you mentioned, Black Lives Matter. How proud can we be of uh, young people? Uh, right. You know, really rising, and you know, in the middle of a major worldwide pandemic. Exactly. Right. right? I mean, exactly. You know, it's it's these are like like i said they're pregnant times as well oh yeah that's a great way they're pregnant times what what were you going to give birth to i'm not sure (laughs) right but it was a pregnant time well if i can can kind of predict in the work that you've done and others um i think you know i do have a lot of hope um and at the same time we're going to have a lot of struggles you know i was also raised in the los angeles series probably in the same time you were and i think that you know being raised in an urban setting and um, was real challenging. And, um, and you know, I have students who talk about hunger today. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. You know, science says during the COVID-19, isolate. You have to isolate into another room. Well, we don't have another room. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so um, I'm working on this recovery process for rural Latinos um, in California and because of the impact of COVID-19. Um, and it's going to be uh, the recovery process. Uh, I, 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 I don't even want to use recovery because I don't think we're recovering. I think, right. you know, because we've seen pandemics and the way the disease happens in our community, we're constantly at the end of that, of that line. And um, just the kind of uh, education and misinformation that people have gotten. And some of that is, and as you know, some of that is so true, because why would we trust the system? No, absolutely. Right? Right. But, but, you know, the work, and and like I said, I feel so, it's a strange, you know, someone would say the joy and sorrow have embraced, you know, that in in the process of so much loss on so many levels and you know for me I look at the bigger picture here this here is this tiny germ this cell this this virus that we can't even see that brought the entire entire planet to its knees right it brought humanity to its knees 
which should have, you would think, have jogged some sense of understanding of how intrinsically connected we all are. How, you know, if, you know, I, I, and again, Chief, you know, I think it was Chief Seattle that says, when you spit upon the earth, you spit upon yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you impact everything. And so we look at this, this opportunity that we were given as a humanity. Right. And even in the midst of such a profound tragedy, there were those who said, okay, what can we do to help? How can we, even, even with the vaccine, you have people, you know, that were, you know, trying to figure out how not to share the, <laughs> the vaccine and who should get it and who shouldn't. Oh, and then total you hunger know, games going on. I mean, wasn't it? It's just insane. And I'm going, what is it going to take for us to figure out that we must coexist in a way that makes sense, that we can, we can one coexist, but we can't turn our heads away from all of these things that we see that are going on in the world and that we've ignored. See, this pandemic forced us to have to care about what was going on with somebody else. It wasn't just enough for, you know, uh, people trying to shelter in place. And like you said, folks didn't have anywhere to separate or they were sheltering in place with people they were terrified of or were abusive or, you know, they're sheltering in a place that lacked any resources to really survive in all of that. And not to mention, you know, the, the, the houseless, homeless populations that just surged around the country. That's it. You know, when what is it going to take for us to see our humanity? And for me, I guess that is where I have the, I hold out hope because young people, you know, and this is honestly, I mean, my whole focus right now is one, stop harming them. That's one part of my exactly. responsibility as an elder. I need to stop you from hurting our kids. Mm-hmm. That's that I feel that huge responsibility. And I feel like I have to I don't have to get the mic. I need to give them whatever wisdom, strength, knowledge, information, support, advocacy that I can so that they hit the tape in this relay. And they're willing to go. Let me just tell you, that's the thing. I look at them. They're going, I I don't just, I I love you, mom and dad, but I'm going to fact check you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to fact check you. I'm going to look for myself. I'm going to find out for myself. And I'm going to stand on what I believe. And I'm watching this happen with kids as young as 12. Yeah. You know what I mean? That are saying, oh, no, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not going with that. Right. And, and so I think the world, the future is bright. I really do believe I, I that do the too. ultimate I is, do is too. bright. I, do too. I think getting, getting there is going to be tough. Yes. But I think it's bright. Right. I do, too. And I really believe, you know, if, if, if this pandemic has not taught us, anything. It's we are one world and we oh are one goodness. world very quickly <laughs> on one plane. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> so yes. I do too. I, I have such hope and, you know, I'm, I'm so fortunate to, you know, just have the opportunity to talk to young people in college and I've, oh, I've been, yeah. you know, what a big light, you know? Um, sure. and, and they've said, we're not going to let this happen again. I know that's right. I'm so, I'm so pleased. And that I'm hearing that I've been doing work with um, some really unique schools across the United States. Um, Some of them are uh, private schools. Uh, These are, some of them are very elite, but the young people in these schools, oh, they, their eyes are open. 
they recognize, you know, their privilege. They recognize that the big folks have not really handled things well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and while they are still learning, they're unwilling to accept that this is this is how life has to be. They they're unwilling to accept that and they are forging new avenues and new ways of being and acting and connecting with other people. And the other thing about this this generation, these these young people, is that the world is their oyster. They're not looking at, not only are they not looking at just uh, their age, they're not looking at their particular ethnic group. They're looking at the world, mm-hmm. and they're seeing the world as theirs. They're seeing the interests of curiosity and uh, the desire to step outside the boxes that they have been imposed on them sometimes by their own families. Yeah. They're, they're not willing to stay in those boxes. And so, like, I look at, you know, I remember saying this, and you may have heard me in one of my presentations. I said, no matter how far you look into the future, I don't care how far you look, it's going to be some, some level of brown. <laughs> it's going to be brown. It's right. Do you understand me? Yes, it's, I do. It's, 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 it's a reality <laughs> yes. that when you look into the future, uh, you know certain there's going to be some shade of brown going on because our our children and their children are embracing the fullness of humanity. Right. They don't feel, um, you know, in any way, uh, you know, s- s- blocked in moving and learning about other people and engaging with. They want that. They're desiring it. They're insisting upon it. So I think, again, that future is bright. But right now, we're in a volatile position we're in a volatile position because we have volatile people running things. Yeah, yeah. And we have uh, this fear, which has always been what folks have used to cause war, to cause strife, to cause division. It's always been fear. And what I've learned of late, the one thing, you know, it's like when you look at the, uh, the superhero movies or you look at any of the, you know, that we're trying to defeat the evil, you know, empire. Right. That you find that essential weakness in uh, the bad guys, so to speak. You find that essential weakness. And the weakness that I have identified is literally proximity. I believe that the more we engage with each other, see, we've been able to polarize the world. And so long as you you can keep people separated, you can keep the lie going on. You can keep the lie that they're dangerous, they're they're subhuman, they don't feel like you feel, they don't think, they're not like you, they're dangerous to you. But you see, when people come together, which is also part of what COVID did as well, you begin to see your commonalities instead of the things that, that make you different that drive division, you begin to see the, our, our common humanity. You begin to see, you know, the possibility of working together. And you see, when you do that, you dispel instantly the darkness, the ignorance. But so long as you can keep people apart, you can keep the mythology going about those people. Oh, those people and, and who they are and how they are. But when people actually engage with one another, it's inst- instantly you, 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 you move beyond that. And so I believe that that is what we are looking at moving forward, that we have to dispel the myths. We have to dispel the ignorance. And we have to empower people to stand in their truth and to stand in their authenticity. And I believe the young people 
are, are not willing to not be who they are and to engage with other people that are different from them. They're not willing to, to, to stand in the shadows anymore or to believe, you know, all of the horror stories. You know, they, they literally, you know, it's like the Empress New Clothes. Yeah. The children and the youth are going, I'm sorry, he's naked. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going right. for that. That's right. You know? That's right. Go put some clothes on. <laughs> That's right. We'll help you, but I'm not going to tell you you got clothes on. That I'm not going to do. <laughs> Absolutely. We're so fortunate to have you because I think that, you know, the young people still need us. They still need us. And for those of us who are still engaging and trying to, you know, spread that gospel to others in terms of... Of course. Right? Um, and so, you know, on Healthcare Untold, we really just believe that people coming together can do incredible things. And on, in our careers, we've seen that. People coming sure. together create so much incredible work for communities, and they also help communities to thrive because it's their communities and their families. And so um, on behalf of uh, Healthcare Untold, um, we want to thank you. Uh, for the work that you've done in your life, the lives that you've changed, the lives that you've um, brought forth to light. Uh, so thank you so much for being my guest today and um, bless you for well, all I, the work I that feel, you've done. Well, thank you so much. And like I said, it is my my honor to be able to serve. Um, I'm grateful that I feel like I have embraced what I, I believe I was, I was born to do. Um, and that is to help heal and to help remind humanity that we are one humanity. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. DeGru. Thank you. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold.